Hello and welcome to Marysville Church of Christ podcast. My name is Bishop Darby and I'll be your host today. We are in our third installment of the Promised Land mini-series here on 20 Questions in which we're answering the granddaddy of them all. Why did God allow, condone, or even enact the massacre of the Canaanites? And we've already been a couple lessons in here. If you are joining us mid-series, I'm going to ask you to stop right now and go back to the first Promised Land episode and start all the way through. The reason why this is very important is today we will exclusively be building off of places we've already been. And we all need to make sure we have the same foundation by which to build on. Last week, we talked about the way Moses, impacted by his world, challenged by his um, people, failed to see the beauty of what God was actually trying to do. We watched it in live action as God commanded Moses one thing, but Moses turned and told the people another. And before we're too critical of Moses, we need to understand something. All people of all generations and all times do this exact same thing. As much as we try to hide it, we are all products of our culture. To some degree, and in some fashion, we are shaped after the world in which we live in. Moses is no different. Moses, growing up in an empire of Egypt, trained by Egyptians, taught in the ways of war, and seeing the splendor of glory that comes from conquest, only knew one thing, and he only knew how to, how to win one way, by the sword. And so when God promised this plan that he's going to introduce hornets and slowly, methodically, over the course of years, gently drive the Canaanites out so the Israelites can have the land, working even so gently as to preserve the livestock and the ground. When Moses heard that, he assumed that was secondary to his primary form of conquest, which is violence. And so we see the commands being written, not by God, but by the hand of someone who's broken. We actually see um, this on display several times later in the New Te- uh, Old Testament, several times in which God even goes back to this moment and talks to later prophets or the children of Israel, inciting these violent actions as the reason that they fall. Because all empires that start by the sword fall by the sword. I'd like us to begin today by examining just when violence started in the Promised Land. Because if we are able to see how violence began, I think it'll enlighten us as to why it happened. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8, is the first time we see Moses and the Israelites go to war. And it was against the Amalekites. In verse 8 of Exodus 17, At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men from us and go and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. 
And Joshua did as Moses had told him, and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. And then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. In this way, Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely erase the memory of Amalek. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up towards God's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek. There's a lot to unpack here, but I'd like to start with a little bit of context. See, this fighting in Exodus 17 comes off the tail end of two moments in the wilderness in which the Israelites doubted God's ability to provide. We see them first grumbling about food and then water both times God delivering. But this indicates a lack of trust and security in God. This shows that even at the highest level, Moses himself, there was a deep level of doubt in God's ability to defend and protect the people. So it's no surprise then in Exodus 17, when Amalek comes out to fight Israel, notice in verse 9, Moses makes the executive decision to go to war. Notice here he doesn't confer with God as he usually does. Notice he doesn't even pray, stop, or get God's approval. He simply rushes into battle. Why? Because that's his instinct. That's who Moses is, and that's what Moses does. He doesn't trust in God's plan or ability to deliver but rather trusts in the sword. And notice how God taught Moses a lesson here, at least he tried to. Moses ran out to war and they were losing unless Moses' hands were to the heavens. You can't get much clearer than this. You can't get much more blatant than this. Moses only finds victory when he is extending his arms to God. A very physical reminder that the sword is not the source of victory. This is a scene that critiques the faith of the Hebrews. God is trying again to remind Moses that war and the sword are not the source of deliverance. Notice also the uh, another moment of transformation. God tells Moses to write down a phrase. And what it is, is first, to remember the combat that just took place, presumably to remember the fact that God is the source of deliverance. And the second is, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek. But by the time verse 16 comes around, notice how Moses changes it. The Lord will be at war with Amalek. Again, Moses hears what he wants to from God, despite the fact that God is not condoning the violence. And in many respects, God is condemning the violence with the critique on their faith. See, what we see is that from the very beginning of violence in the Exodus, 
it was started on a lack of trust, developed in a lack of security, and enacted in a lack of God. And in every situation, in every single one of these things, we, we see that violence was not God's ideal in the Exodus. God was not sitting in heaven desiring for this war. In fact, several times he tried to get Moses to stop, to realize, to remember. And he never did. So, it should be no surprise to us that when we get to Deuteronomy 7, and Moses begins to warp God's command from Exodus 23, that we see, that we see violence as the primary objective in the eyes of a broken people. <clears throat> Notice also this, though. God actually would come back and punish the Israelites for the way that they acted. In Psalm 7:16, the psalmist writes of a traditional form of divine punishment. His trouble comes back on his own head, and his violence falls on the top of his head. In 2 Kings, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 2, Verse 32, the Lord will bring back his own blood on his head. We see this multiple times in the Old Testament, that when someone acts in violence, they receive violence. When someone takes blood, blood is often spilt. This idea of Israel's violence here in the Promised Land, in the Exodus, falling back on their heads is not something that we see actualized in Moses' lifetime, but actually in Hosea chapter 10. It says this, You have plowed wickedness and reaped injustice, O house of Israel. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in your large number of soldiers. The roar of battle will rise against your people, and all of your fortifications will be demolished in the day of war like Shalman's destruction of Beth Arbal, mothers will be dashed to pieces along with their children. In this lamentation, God is showing that violence always comes back. And here they chose violence. It's all the way back in Exodus. God's heart is breaking as he's looking into the future and seeing heartache. Seeing the blood coming back on the people. Violence was started because of a broken man's broken lens. It was first done out of a lack of trust, and God never supported it. Consider this in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, Joshua is walking along a hill outside of Jericho and sees a man standing there. And this is what happens. As Joshua saw the man, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, as Joshua saw the man with a drawn sword in his hand, he asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? And listen to what was responded. Neither, he replied. I am a commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. What's interesting here is that in this moment, God could have supported the violence. God could have sat there and he could have condoned it. He could have backed it up. 
He could have reinforced it, but he didn't. And not only did he not back up the violence, not only did he not support the violence, he went so far as to clearly say he's not on Israel's side. God did not stand with Israel through the violence in support. Though he may have stood with them in solidarity out of love and covenantal promise, he was not for the violence of Israel. And there really is no passage in this clearer than this. We see that all of this time that God had remained silent, like that passage in Psalm 50, verse 21, all this time that he remained silent, Moses thought, Joshua thought, the people thought God was with them, but they, but he wasn't. But he wasn't. This moment on the hill with Joshua could have been a turning point. It could have been a moment where Joshua realized that he has failed. That he has missed the point. But it wasn't. And Joshua prepared for war. Because that's what Joshua does. That's what Moses does. That's what we do. But the question still remains, if God wasn't in support of the violence, if God didn't command the violence as we've tried to argue these last couple of lessons, then why didn't God do something to stop it? Why did God idly sit by and watch as man and woman and child died at the hands of a bloodthirsty people? That's a great question. 